Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Autosport Podcast. To mark 1,000 World Championship races, we ask... What is the greatest Grand Prix car? We've had many discussions about the great Formula One drivers on the Autosport podcast, but not so many about great cars. So in the week of the 1000th World Championship race in China, we decided it was time to put things right and ask the big question, which is the greatest Grand Prix car of the World Championship era? Joining me first is master of lists, Autosport magazine editor Kevin Turner. You've been writing about this very topic, so you are our resident expert. The rest of us are just... Non-experts, evidently. Oh, well, I don't think that's the case. But yes, um, the, the the April 11th issue of the magazine is um, a big piece on uh, the greatest cars. Ben Anderson um, has, uh, drove four of them, and I've done a piece on the other ten. So uh, yes, we've, we've tried to cover the main ones in that. Well, you've kind of introduced Ben Anderson there, who is joining us. You have Hello. driven four of these cars, without giving too much away about which cars they were. They were, they were all quite Norfolk-y, weren't they? Yes, they were very Norfolk-y. I'm delighted to be fodder for Kevin Turner on this, this podcast. Yeah, four lotuses, four iconic it lotuses. Was, um, 
it was funny, wasn't it? Because um, we were talking about this on the plane. That obviously, you know, you got to you got to drive four Back championship winning Lotuses, and we were sat the road directly behind a Formula One driver. And you, uh, you've driven more world championship winning cars than he has. Yeah, I've been very lucky. Even um, though this was a podium finishing F1 driver. Yeah, there you go. Sergio Perez, eat your heart out. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and my final guest is Jake Boxer-Leg, technical expert, general multimedia superstar, <laughs> and actually, unusually. We Artist extraordinaire. Oh, well, that's one of the things. Yeah, the uh, you, you've brought some notes, but instead of notes, you've, you've drawn pictures of some of the cars we're discussing. Yeah, uh, I was getting very, very waylaid in my research uh, because obviously the old cars, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not, a, I wasn't alive to remember half of them. Sorry, guys. You know how uh, history works. You <laughs> that's no excuse. <laughs> I think one is from the year I was born and then there's three more that I was around for and the rest I've had to do a bit of research. Well, End up doodling, got distracted. I'm a little bit worried about which uh, which one was from the year you were born. That that'll probably be something. It was a good one. It was a good one. Something that well, we remember too well. Well, you, while you may be uh, relatively young, you know your stuff, so uh, we will look forward to your insights. Well, let's get started now, Kev. I guess the the first thing is we have to lay out our criteria. We're talking about the greatest World Championship era Grand Prix car. I guess the simple thing is we have to emphasise this is the World Championship era. So it's it's 1950 onwards. It excludes the pre-war year. Some great cars there, but because this marks 1,000 World Championship races, it makes sense to go for the World Championship era. So that's line drawn under that. How are we defining greatness within that parameter? Well, I think the two, the two main things we're going to be looking at, one is how much they change the game. You know, with innovation, you know, did they did these cars make a significant technological advancement that then all the other teams had to follow? Um, and then the other one is, were they successful? Because the two aren't necessarily the same. You know, we've had successful cars. Uh, the 1989 Ferrari uh, with the semi-automatic gearbox, for example, um, did change the game, but broke down too often and, and just wasn't successful enough. So I think they're the main two criteria. Um, and I'd chuck in a third probably and say it's sort of an X factor. I think it's got to be a cool car as well. I think to be the greatest F1 car, it's got to be something we all look at and go, yeah, that's 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 cool. Well, that's fairly simple. It's uh, three three boxes to tick. And I think that the important thing is that success on its own doesn't guarantee you a place in the discussion and innovation on its own doesn't necessarily. It's a fusion of the two plus the Kevin Turner X factor, which sounds like a great idea for a television show. We'll have to, uh, we'll have to get working on that. But uh, cool. <laughs> back to the cars. Well, let's go in chronological order. We're going to start with not a car from the very start of the World Championship era, but we're going to the Mercedes W196, 1954-55. It was raced in World Championship races. Uh, I've credited it with 1.775 drivers' championships because, of course, Fangio started the, 90, uh, the 54 season in the Maserati before he switched into the Mercedes when it came in, although he scored most of his points in the Mercedes. And nine wins from 12 races, so 75%. Uh, win rate and of course it didn't win any constructors championship because it predates the constructors so what, why was that your starting point kev um well we excluded the uh alfetta the alpha 158159 so sorry alpha fans because really pre-war voiturette pre-war voiturette car and to be quite honest didn't really have a lot of opposition so i think that's discarded and then obviously you've got the ferraris and the formula 2 era from ferrari 500 again didn't didn't really have much in the way of opposition so the mercedes i think is the first the two and a half litre regulations 1954 are the first proper formula one rules i think and three important cars came out for, uh, for those uh, w196 was one maserati 250f which is the most famous 50s car was another and the lancia d50 and the mercedes steamrolled the other two really the maserati just wasn't as quick or as reliable um even though it's the most famous 
And the Lancia, unfortunately, they lost its its lead driver, Alberto Ascari, early on in the season. was killed in a Ferrari sports car accident in 55 and, and didn't have the money. So halfway through the year, handed the cars over to Enzo Ferrari. So the Mercedes was was the dominant car. It was, it was reliable. Uh, and it did have a couple of innovations, which I'm hoping that Jake will be able to to pick up the pattern on. Yeah, have you drawn a picture of this? And if you have drawn a picture of it, have you drawn it in open wheel form or Stromlinienwagen form, streamliner form? I was I was going to go for the streamline one, but uh, I think we ran out of time before we had to come and start podcasting, and I didn't want to delay matters just so I could do a doodle. But it's got some cool features. There is, of course, the streamlined version. What was that in German? Sorry, Stromlinienwagen. I enjoyed that. Uh, I'm sure, that's <laughs> terrible pronunciation. Even though I did study German once in a past life but that was the variant for circuits like monza and silverstone so where low drag cars were as important as it possibly needed to be the engine was also quite interesting as well we have in formula one now direct injection engines and that had one uh it was derived from daimler benz's engines that were used in messerschmitt planes during world war ii uh, but it also had what's known as a desmodromic valve as well. So that's something that Ducati uses now for all of its uh, Desmodici line of motorcycles. But it's essentially a rather than having like a valve spring, for example, because back in the 50s, engines weren't nearly as reliable, didn't have the amount of stress testing that you do now. Um, the springs and things like that weren't quite as reliable. You couldn't control the engine as much. So by having a cam and lever system, you could sort of time the valves a little bit more effectively almost um it, today it's not really used so much because everything's so much more reliable but uh, it had those innovations it helped it at the time as a product of its time in many ways but there's also some cool sort of calls forwards for the tech it used really probably worth mentioning with that car as well that in 54 when it first came out although it did win its first race the french grand prix it, it was a little bit shaky the power output that its its brake horsepower per ton was not dissimilar to the the Ferrari and the, the Lancia. The Lancia outpaced it at the final round in 54. Ferrari beat it twice. So it was it, it was just in the mix then. But for 55, they got more power out of it. They shortened the wheelbase. And then they also put Sterling Moss alongside uh, one man or Fangio. So they then had the most professional team running the best car that was most reliable with two of the three best drivers in the world. And then they went on, they, then they steamrolled the opposition really. Uh, and the only, they only lost the Monaco Grand Prix every, everywhere else. They were, I think in one race, I think at the British Grand Prix, they were one, two, three, four. So it was, yeah, they, they, they put themselves out of reach of the Italian teams at that point. But it's an interesting question, isn't it, Kev? You mentioned the X Factor. And the Mercedes W196, I mean, it is hailed as a great car, but it's not its not the most loved car of that period. I mean, Ben, you did a, a piece a few years ago, a great car, the Maserati 250F, which is almost the, the kind of in the popular imagination. It's almost like the template of the 1950s Grand Prix car, isn't it? Yet it was nowhere near as successful or good in any ways. I mean, some people might wonder why we're not thinking about the 250F for, for this. But, you know, that, that was a car that its fame out outstretches its success yeah it's probably an example of style over substance isn't it really and compared to the to the Merck um I interviewed Sterling Moss for that piece on the 250F and he basically wrote it off in the the first part of that interview saying well you know it didn't have the the power of its opposition it was it just wasn't as good a car but it was a very drivable car um user-friendly is the word that he used to describe it uh and you know, it's just it's sort of luscious to look at, isn't it? It's got that um it's just got that style. It's iconic and representative of its era in terms of looks, um, and sometimes that is the thing that leaves more of an impression than the 
the you know the important bits underneath that actually make the car go quicker let's move on to the next car i think as we go along we're going to decide whether these cars kind of make it to the final as it were i think the i think the mercedes w196 we have to put through as it were because it, it was the first great world championship era grand prix car we move forward only a few more years kev but we're going for the the cooper t51 Jack Brabham won the championship in '59, and it so it won six year six races in its three years at, at the top level. It uh, it was still cropping up occasionally in 1961, although it had been superseded, obviously, by the, the Cooper T53. Now, clearly, this is this is the rear engine revolution car, isn't it? That's that's what it, that's why it's in this list. Yeah, it's it's got to be very scored very highly on the game changer factor, hasn't it? If we're being pedantic, we should say mid engine because the engines between the driver and the rear axle. It wasn't the first mid-engine or rear-engine Grand Prix car. Um, obviously, Auto Union were very successful before the Second World War um, with a mid-engine car. But the Cooper is the one that made it stick. Before the Cooper, all serious Grand Prix cars were were front-engined, and after it, they were they were mid-engined. So it's, it, it scores very highly there. It was more agile. It was lighter, and actually, because of the lower frontal area, it it wasn't it didn't give much away to uh, the Ferraris in straight line speed. It was a li- it was a little bit off because they had sheer power advantage. But uh, Jack Brabham was able to prove even I think at, at Avis in 1959, which was basically just a, a two lane two sides of a motorway with a hairpin at one end and a banked banked corner at the other. That if you stuck in the slipstream, you could you could stay with the Ferraris and and then do them under braking. So it what it, it you know it made them all obsolete pretty much pretty much overnight really what you have with the front engine is although you know you've got some weight over the front wheels you still have a massive amount of understeer and in a racing car that's definitely not what you want you want to be able to control it fluidly uh, get it around the corners as fast as you possibly can and having the engine in the rear that just alleviates that that helps that so much more you have better weight distribution you don't have to shove a massive great prop shaft through the middle of the car to drive the rear wheels you don't have to separate your gearbox casing you don't have to do anything like that it just makes more sense to have it in the back that's what all mainstream sports cars do now as you say that's what everybody does in racing i mean imagine trying catering of course uh but imagine trying to build a formula one car now with a front engine could i suggest that this one is lost at this point is that Am I, am I allowed to say that at this point? I think because it only scored six, was it six wins? Six World yeah, Championship wins? Yeah. I was going to say this scores highly in your innovation. Very highly innovation. Not much X Factor and I not don't much think it's success. got much X Factor. It's a, I mean, even Jack Brabham said the T53 was the first proper Cooper Formula One car, which given that he'd won the World Championship with the T51 is pretty damning. I don't think it's got much in the way of X Factor. And it was quite nip and tuck with Tony Brooks and Ferrari in in 59 i think it was the t53 that really n- sort of nailed the change and the lotus 18 of course which was even quicker i think in this company i mean it's a, any list of the the most influential would have to have the cooper t51 in it but i think perhaps in this company it's it's just slightly slightly losing out even though it has transformed everything let's move on to the next one which is one of the cars you've driven ben which is the lotus mm. 25 that turned up in the world championship from 62 to 67 obviously and the cars tended to have a longer competitive life with private teams running them etc long after they were superseded but it was a it was a very effective car and i've kind of credited it with 1.17 drivers championship (laughs) championship but that just reflects the fact that it was briefly used in 65 as well so contributed a little bit uh a bit there to uh to clark's success and the the team's success 14 wins in that period and yeah well, you, you've you've sat in it recently. What what can you tell us about it? Yeah, it was well, it was very cramped for someone of my frame. Um, I'm quite a bit taller than Jim Clark was, although leaner, which was you know a boon to me. 
Um, but nevertheless, yeah, uh, tricky to get myself crammed into the into that car. It was um, R4, the car I drove, the 63 championship winner. The, the Lotus 25, really. The yeah, Lotus 25, indeed. Um, still races on in historics successfully. Um, so, you know, we're not just, we weren't just pulling this out of a museum and uh, running it around for the first time in 50 years or what have you. Although I was very conscious of driving what is a museum piece to one of the greatest Formula One drivers in history. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very old car, so um, it's limited in many ways. Um, but you can still see imprints of that car in subsequent categories. It felt to me like driving a Formula V or a historic Formula Ford, or even not quite a modern Kent Formula Ford, somewhere in between. Um, Formula V is probably the closest um, comparison from kind of modern club racing with the tall, skinny tyres, um, quite basic setup, but all the arrangements of where the controls are and the um, manual gear shift were all quite familiar. Um, yeah, not a lot of grip as you'd expect from a car of that era and tyres of that contact patch, um, but an impressive e- piece of engineering nonetheless and a great sound from that. Uh, Climax V8 engine. What to say about this one, Jamie? Do you have a Do you have a sketch for us? I haven't got a sketch again. Uh, I was a bit ropey on the old cars, but of course the 25 was that was the first monocoque chassis, wasn't it? And um, that really changed the game for well, that's what we have now. Um, everybody in the early days was using tubulous steel space frames and things like that. And Chapman was asked, "Where are the tubes?" When it first appeared, wasn't he? By John Cooper, no less. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's when the car turned up, um, they'd found that you can get greater stiffness, greater torsional resistance by building a monocoque. So that's when essentially part of the car's body is that is the chassis, usually done by. Back then, it was like aluminium sandwich monocoque, but now it's carbon fiber. Um, so that just ensures that when you're going around the track the car's not flexing so much so that means that your suspension setup is essentially your suspension setup in many ways you still have a little bit of flex in the chassis but it was about three times stiffer than a uh, space frame so although a space frame is easier to design um yeah the monocoque really changed things in terms of performance so that's what everybody gravitated towards in it eventually also worth mentioning that allowed it to reduce the frontal area as well because obviously it's one and a half liter formula so relatively underpowered cars i think when ben drove it had about 190 with the exotic fuel mixture they used to use in the 60s uh, um, we reckon it's probably about 210 215 maybe at a push um so not a lot of power for what you think of a formula one car no you um, felt that as well even around there yeah, track, but, not the longest but of circuits, very but. quickly they were doing quicker lap times than the two and a half litre formula, which ended in 1960. But Collins, Colin Chapman's push was to try and reduce the frontal area. And if you look at the Lotus 24, which is a, effectively the predecessor, the space frame car, he got the one it they down. gave to all the customers. It, yeah, the one, he, the one he sold to all the customers. And they went, oh, oops, sorry, we've got this now. Um, yeah, that, that was that's pretty tightly packaged um, for the time. Uh, and they were sort of struggling to work out how they could possibly reduce the the frontal area. And by by bringing in the monocot, they were able to lay Colin uh, Jim Clark down a bit further, uh, smaller frontal area. Clark actually talks about in his autobiography it was a bit weird when he first drove it. The driving position was that different. He was lying down again. We we take that for granted now. But yeah, it, that, feel, it it's the first example of what you see as yeah. It's, the, it's well, the driving you were sitting, for a single seat. You were sitting in, not on the car, and I think that's Correct. that's what that's what the Lotus Twenty Five brought in. My my one caveat against it is that Clark was the only person that won a World Championship Grand Prix in it, and I think 
I'd like to see the winner of this be one that had got a couple of drivers at least winning. But so, so do you think it maybe lacks just that tiny bit? I'm not a huge fan of the 1.5 liter era, as you know. It's not my. It's it's not. It's probably the era that least chimes on me. the engine. So a, tiny, a tiny bit. I mean, the as, as Kev said, they were they were soon uh, doing very quick uh, quick times. But I mean, basically, we have got a, a little bit of a, a a clutch of lotuses we're going to work through now. So it's whether it's whether the 25 advances, as it were. I, I would say that I'd be happy to lose the 25 from the finals, but I think it's worth pointing out that Clark's tally of seven wins from 10 in 1963 in the car that Ben drove wasn't beaten until Ayrton Senna in 1988 with the MP44 McLaren. Okay, well, we'll say, we'll say a fond farewell to the Lotus 25, but then move on to another Lotus. It's a very Lotus-y era, this. Uh, the Lotus 49 in its various forms, race from 67 to 1970. I credit it with 1.2 drivers and constructors championships, 12 wins. Now the 49, Kevin, there's one obvious thing with the 49 that always springs to mind in terms of its uh, game-changing qualities. Well, it brought in the Cosworth DFV engine, which I think you'd be hard-pressed to argue there was another engine that's a a greater Formula 1 power plant uh, and also made it a stress member. So, I mean, in a way, the stress member is more important because that's something that, um, as, as Jake, I'm sure will... Uh, we'll, we'll carry on uh, for us. Well, um, well, I was actually was, thinking about the arrow, the the wing side as well. Well, I don't think that the forty nine should be credited with that. Well, uh, that's another in, uh, yeah in a, in a Grand Prix car context, shall we say? And it was the biggest step year on year, um, I think, in F one history. Um, in six, terms of pace, in terms of speed, yeah, raw speed. So ninety six six, the new three liter regulations came in, and to be quite honest, nobody was ready. Um, and Jack Brown won the World Championship by being pragmatic and getting a sensible, reliable uh, Repco engine. But but really, the Cosworth came along like, this is what you can do with a three-litre Formula 1 engine in the late 60s. And it was so good that um, they Cosworth and Ford basically said to Colin Chapman, you've got to let this, this has got to be available to other teams after the first season. He had a two-year deal to start with. And you're going to kill Formula 1 if you if if because you're just going to win everything. Um and he, and he agreed to. I'm sure he got a good deal out of it. Yeah, there's a lot of innovation within the 49. The thing against it is of course it was the quickest car in 67. I think it was the 10th or 11th most dominant car in terms of raw speed and managed not to win the world championship because it broke down so often. Did win in 68 in the form that that Ben Ben drove it, but B-spec. Um, yeah, the B-spec. Um which was just tidied up and a little bit easier to drive i think yeah different suspension i think yeah yeah and then obviously it started to sprout wings and the c version which won its last grand prix in monaco 1970 which is pretty amazing span basically that's the first real glimpse of why the things are what they are today essentially uh why it's such an aerodynamically dependent formula because there were wings on that particular car and it proved so successful obviously um had their own back then and it came from i think it was can-am racing that originally Chaparral, yeah, yeah it was originally pursuing that kind of way. Uh, the engine is a stress member. Essentially, that that means that the engine is part of the chassis. In the um, that that you have the rear end, um, the engine is twisting with the chassis, and so you that develops its own torsional resistance in accompaniment with the chassis uh, as bolted in, rather than just being plonked in the car uh, and just shoved in. It's it is the car. Uh, it is part of the car. Um, and that Cosworth DFV, um, again, it was the car was built around that to accommodate that rather than just shoving some customer engine in and going, yeah, that'll do. Um, it, it became ubiquitous with the package and it was smaller than anything 
else out there on the market. It was lighter than anything else out there on the market um, and more powerful. And having the engine as a stress member, that's also why we have V6s in the current engine formula now, because when they were devising the rules of the 2014 engine formula, it was originally going to be inline four engines. And they were like, hang on a minute, that's not really going to work from how Formula One cars work. Uh, in terms of their chassis layout so that's why they went for v6s and that's kind of thanks to the lotus 49 and colin chapman's many brain children well ben you've you've driven the car i mean the 49 particularly early on didn't have a reputation maybe it was the easiest car to get the most most out of but it had some great drivers in it driving the 49 i felt like the that was the first um of the four i drove um that felt like the basis of what a formula one car should be it was it was much bigger than the the 25 massive tires still treaded but a proper contact patch you mentioned the wings okay they were primitive but nevertheless they they just give you that impression much more power from the engine um slightly more refined shifting system from the hewlin gearbox um so just more speed more grip more power better braking performance but it was a slightly vague car to drive. The Hethel Test Track, you've got two sets of S's linked by hairpins, basically. Um, one of the back straights has a chicane in it. Um, and through the through the quicker set of the S's, you really should just be flat out all the way from one hairpin to a quick right-hander, which I think is flat out in some cars and not others. Certainly, it's quite a bit of a sketchy corner, not much runoff. It's called Windsock. Uh, and... In the 49B, yeah, you could stay flat all the way from the hairpin through that, that snake, if you like, to the to the quick right-hander. But you had to really pay attention. You were using all of the road. The car could easily wander across it. It gave me a snap of oversteer uh, on one lap. It was So it was slightly deceptive to drive because you'd think, oh, this is a really sturdy car. There's loads of grip. Look at the size of these tyres. And you'd go up and up and up towards that. And then all of a sudden, oh, there, there isn't grip there. Uh, and under braking better obviously than the 25 because its tyres were so much bigger but not not the sort of super impressive stopping power you'd expect from a, a modern single seater. The Lotus 49 probably does have to advance through to our final stages of successful three elements of it are significant in terms of defining the breed so anybody objecting to that? No it's got X factor for me as well um, mainly because Graham Hill drove it and I'm a massive Damon Hill fan so. That's uh, as good a reason as any? <laughs> Very cool, I thought. Well, let's, let's move on to yet another Lotus, the Lotus 72, uh, which turned up from 1970 to 75. A couple of drivers' championships, three constructors' championship, 20 wins. I think this sets the template for what a modern single-seater looks like. It's uh, It basically invents the side pod, which uh, Jake will know he has to bang on about it every other week because there's another flick or barge board attached to them. Um, so, yeah, so moving the radiator... Uh, radiator from the nose to the sides gives that chisel nose again reduced frontal area they did quite a bit of suspension work as well so that they could use softer compound uh rubber for the whole race um and it, I, th- I think to me it just obviously by then you've also had the ban on the high wings which is what the 49 had at one point during its life and so you've and got the low wings that was that was risky yeah that was 
pushing it a bit too far, wasn't it? The one I drove um, didn't have the high wings. No, no, yours so didn't have the high wings. Yours sensible. had the sensible wings. Yeah. Um, and, the, and, the, and the 72 just goes, oh, yeah, okay, well, this is all the stuff we've learned, and here's a, yeah, here's, here's the package. They did try anti-dive, anti-squat suspension, which did not work to the point where Jochen Rin didn't actually want to drive it at times in 1970. Uh, and he ended up winning the Monaco Grand Prix in the 49C before he then moved to the 72. And, and once they got it working, it was, it was away, and obviously accumulated enough points to win the world championship, even though he was then killed at, at Monza. Um, so, yeah, so I think it sets the template for what a modern uh, single-seater looks like and had incredible longevity. If we're looking at the success rate, it won the 1970 uh, Drivers' and Constructors' Championship, uh, 72, and it should have won. It did win the Constructors' in 73, um, but Jackie Stewart beat them because Ronnie Peterson and Emerson Fipada took points off each other and, and Stuart was just better basically but had he not been there it would have won again and it was still winning races in 74 so yeah pretty pretty impressive on all counts I would say I think it was pretty cool as well but it had a lot of interesting curiosities as Kev has already mentioned the uh, side pod radiators so um, when you're dealing with the centre of gravity and centre of mass that just brought it more central so the car's a lot easier to handle at that point because you don't have this massive inertia at the front end of the car just swaying as you're trying to get into a corner. Um, the brakes were inboard at the front end, um, which it's very strange. Again, you're reducing the general overall unsprung mass of the car, and again, that means it's a lot easier to control. But the problem you have there is brake cooling. Um you know, these are steel brakes. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I started to get very hot feet driving that particular car. <laughs> Is, yeah, and there's just there wasn't really the provision for it. So um, yeah, obviously, cue Ben's burning feet. Um, They're not on fire now. I'll just point out. <laughs> but the, it was able to be sort of updated. Um, even 1971, after Jochen Rinn sadly died, they sort of regrouped and sort of thought, okay. Uh, how do we make this car a little bit more user-friendly? How do we make it better? Came up with a new rear suspension package, a new wing package, and turned up. Um, Stuart won that year, but 72 was obviously the car to have. Um, and then in 73, it was had to be updated with a load of safety requirements as well, and it managed that admirably. So it was quite versatile as well. Um, but again, I think it was just it start did start to get a little bit long in the tooth towards the end of its life and even though it was still competitive i think Lotus finished about sixth in the constructors championship in 75 when you had the ferrari f uh or ferrari 312t and god knows what all the cool cars that were starting to come in around then the interesting thing about testing all of the cars obviously we get to the fourth subsequently um is you could really feel the step each time you know in terms of performance um, 72 was a joy actually in particular privilege because the version I drove um, had only be recently been restored having been crashed by Emerson Fittipaldi in practice for the 73 Dutch Grand Prix stored for well, stored for 40 years did nothing and then painstakingly restored over the last six years and only recently finished I think I was the second person ever to drive it since the restoration so a real privilege um steering wheel signed by Emerson himself actually he sat uh, in the unfinished version at a historic show um, while they were still doing the doing the job um, apparently it meant more to him than any of the other cars there were other cars from his career at that event and um, yeah he was very keen to know how the I think that was always was his favorite the 72 yeah yeah and I can see why it's, it, it, I've raced um, a historic Formula 5000 car I've been lucky enough to do that and tested um, a couple more 
and they're considered by you know historic racing aficionados basically the closest you can get to f1 performance without being in an f1 car and i think mario andretti said a formula formula 5000 car on the right tires could actually beat formula one car lap time around certain circuits but you've always got this massive engine lump in the back uh limiting what you can do with the chassis and in terms of handling you always having to stop the car a bit too much and you know wait for it to sort itself out before you can get back on the throttle with the the 72 it felt like the sort of car formula 5000 should be much more agile much more responsive um you have big slick tires um so much more grip than i had in the 25 or the 49b um yeah the only drawback really uh was um as jbl mentioned the the inboard brakes at the front they just they just get too hot they feel like they're they're snagging the whole time you don't feel like you have as much control over the retardation as you'd like but fantastic car to drive well i think the the lotus 72 has to advance into our final just through sheer sheer weight of numbers if nothing else and there are other reasons for it so well innovations huge success longevity and it looks cool colin chapman's son clive he said it's the greatest lotus formula one car well let's come on to the fourth of a run of lotuses the lotus 79 uh, which had a competitive life from 78 to 79 in the world championship won the drivers and constructors championship in 78 six victories of course mario andretti indelibly linked with with that car and it's it's the ground effect i want to start with you ben Again, this is your uh, speciality. You, you were in that car the other day. I think you said it's your favourite. Yeah, it was my favourite. Um, it's a close run thing with the 72. I guess what clinched it for me is that, the, as I was explaining, the 72 feels quite close to the Formula 5000 cars I've driven. It felt very familiar, even if slightly better in terms of its handling, whereas the 79 just felt different. I didn't have a, the same reference, if you like. So it was a fresher experience. It's the most modern. You look at the styling of it, it, it looks much closer to what you understand a modern Grand Prix car to be. Um, you know, it's the beginning of people going absolutely nuts in terms of producing downforce and extracting further lap time from the cars. Yeah, I just I just think it, it looks so cool. And it was, it was great to drive. I wasn't quite so spoiled in terms of the uh, newness of the tyres. But, you know, this was a... This was a race prepped, effectively, uh, historic Lotus, it, it recently seen action. Um, I was rev limited in, well, all of the cars for obvious reasons um, to protect them. Uh, but this was the, the only one of the four that had the right ratios for the track. So I didn't feel like I was having to, you know, protect the car. I could just drive it and get into a rhythm. Um yeah, really, really impressive piece of kit. We weren't, at, you know, full ground effect to race in historics. There's a 40 millimetre minimum ride height. They don't have all the skirts on them. So I wasn't going around uh, the back of the Hethel circuit blacking out from uh, the G-forces. But um, it was very, um, very impressive in terms of its performance. Much better under braking than the 72, which is always helpful because everything flows from, from that really unless you're in a high-speed corner. And yeah, just really cool to be driving such a, such an iconic design. JBL, where would you put the significance of the, the 79? It's always talked about as the first ground effect, Formula 1 car, the first skirt ground effect for Formula 1 car, although, of course, the Lotus 78, its predecessor, wasn't quite as successful. It was a strong car, but did have uh, the, the skirt. It was the first ground effect Lotus in, in that regard. So how, how significant should we say the Lotus 79 is? Uh, this is the car that really turned everybody onto the effect of 
underbody aerodynamics and how important they were. I think Colin Chapman described this as like something for nothing aero. Um, you don't have the drag penalty of wings and anything like that. You just have solid, good old-fashioned suction underneath the car. So a quick explainer for ground effect for those listening that aren't 100% sure. Um, imagine the side pods on the car are essentially just a massive wing uh, inverted like every other Formula 1 car wing. Um, and then airflow passed underneath is the point where the wing is at its sort of like thickest point that's really close to the ground that creates a massive suction effect and that just pulls the car down to the ground um you've got the skirts on to avoid any kind of bumps or crosswinds or anything like that to stop it from working and that was how it generated downforce and it was a very very powerful car but back then ground effects weren't quite as sophisticated as perhaps they would be now and so just a bit of a bump or don't stay off the curves basically yeah or if you're behind another car and you get some kind of upset underneath you could probably you know the the damage would be colossal but still the 79 fantastic car especially in the hands of mario andretti um really it looks cool as well um not probably not as cool as the 72 in my opinion but still really nice car and yeah as i said set the tone for what we believe to be mainstream underbody aero now so what do you think, Kev? We've got to decide if the 79 advances or not. The counter-argument I'd make to it is, well, the 78 was the one that, that pioneered the, the F1 ground effects in skirts, and then you'd argue that the Williams FW07 was the car that very quickly took that baton and ran with it quite quite rapidly. I would support both of those those comments, um, particularly the the Williams one. In fact, when I was fortunate enough to be with, with Ben when we were doing the, the track test, and I spoke to Clive Chapman and, and he basically said, you know, Colin wanted to find the next second. It was never, oh, let's find another 10th. It was the next big idea. So, and sometimes that obviously worked brilliantly as we've seen in the last four cars we've talked about. But if it didn't work, then you were, you know, you, you handed the advantage to somebody else. And Patrick Head looked at the low seven times and went, yeah, I think I know what they're doing uh, and did a better job and just moved it on. And the Lotus 80 didn't work and Lotus were left floundering and never won another another world championship. Um, I think even Mario Andretti during the you know, during the seventy eight season pointed out the car was flexing too much because obviously Colin's background was wanting to make things as light as possible, etc. Uh, and he Mario understood that you needed it to be stiffer so that you could keep the you, know, you minimise the amount of air that was you know, leaking effectively. They did some stiffening um, after pre season testing. Yeah, but they? compared to a Williams, it was you know, like a jelly. <laughs> um, so it, it lost that advantage very quickly and also as a kind of little aside if you really wanted to suck in 1978 you wanted a fan on the back and in the Brabham um, which was just which, <laughs> which yeah, was bad it had one con- <laughs> one contest with the 79 and one and then it was well, I don't think it was a technically no, banned it was, technically it was a, not a, banned. Agree, agreed that it wouldn't be run again effectively um, banned but not explicitly uh, banned gentlemen's agreement banned. yeah that sort of thing um, and, and yeah the 79 won six world championship races um, I think that's partly because Ferrari had Michelin tyres, which moved moved the rubber game on, so it kind of offset slightly. Um, so yeah, I, I think a fantastic car, but for a very brief moment, it's sort of the opposite to the forty nine and seventy two, and it didn't really have a very long life at all. You know, it came in what I think round five of of seventy eight, and by seventy nine, it was it was already been over, overtaken. So I'd be happy to lose it from the list. Okay, well we've we've ended up with well, I like l- we've ended up with losing oh, it's a mega car. Yeah, we, we've lost three of the f- of the first six cars. So that's not necessarily a bad bad thing. I mean, all three we've lost a great cars, but we have to try and come up with a with a with an outcome. Uh, but I mean, before we move on, Kev, I do just want to say we've had a run of four Lotuses taking us 
over quite a long period of time. There's no Ferraris in there, no Van Wall. There will be people saying, well, hang on a minute, why why so Lotus-centric? I mean, obviously, you've considered other cars in that period. So can you just give a very brief summary of why Lotus blew everyone out of the water in that era and why various of these other cars are not, not made it in? Well, partly it's the game-changing aspect. You know, I think it's pretty clear between 1960 and 1978, most of the significant innovations came from Colin Chapman and Lotus. Um, so that's that's a big part of it. Um, also, it did most of the winning. Uh, strike rate was better than Ferrari or Brabham or BRM during that period. I guess the cars that you could mention that we've sort of not covered off, one would be uh, the McLaren M23, which was very successful and lasted a long time, and I suspect actually would have been even more successful... How shall I put this? Was that uh, a case the, of optimizing the seventy-two though? Yeah, I think that the the the, the McLaren twenty-three. You can you look at it and it you can kind of, you know the side pods. Uh, the look of it is quite like the seventy-two. Although in fairness, McLaren had done the M sixteen Indy car, which had a, was thinking along the similar sort of lines, um, but it wasn't quite successful. Wasn't quite as long lived. It just sort of it. It's like the Lotus seventy-two light almost. So it, if you were doing a twenty list, we'd be talking about it, but it's not. It's not quite there. Um, I think had it maybe had a Jackie Stewart in it earlier in its career, I think it'd have wiped the floor with everyone in seventy three. But that's that's perhaps a different conversation. Um, and the other car is the the well, yeah we haven't said talked about any Ferraris really yet. The three one two T series um, was very successful. This is the kind of for me. This is the first time Ferrari really realizes its potential of all the resources and all everything it had. You know, Nicky Lauda, Luca de Montezemolo, Mara Figueri, designer. Um, and that T-series of cars from 1975 up to 79 was incredibly successful, transverse gearbox. Um, but which car do you pick? You know, I think the T4 is quite a significantly different car to the original 312T. And the T5 is dreadful. It's completely blown away by the Grand Effects cars. So it just it just missed out. Um, but they're, they're probably the two key ones that, that we've not talked about yet. Yeah, and I guess people might throw around things like the two old P thirty four, but only won one race, and it was a it was a dead end developmentally. So I think that's why that that car, while well loved, doesn't doesn't go through. Well, and the Eagle, of course, yeah, you know, Dan Gurney's Eagle, car. fantastic. You know, a lot of people consider that one of the best looking F one cars. But you know, he won one World Championship Grand Prix. Um, you know, and the Lotus Forty Nine really was quite a, quite a step ahead of it in in reality. Uh, well, we have now covered off six cars in the first half of this podcast. We're back in the second part to go through another series of six and then come up with a with an answer. Well, we do have to to move a little bit off off good cars and good progress and go to a slightly less successful team and talk about the Autosport IGP Manager team. Of course, IGP Manager available to uh, to download on iOS and Android and to play on browser. Grand Prix Management Game lets you build up your own team cars designers recruit people we're four races into the season in Bahrain we finished 14th now I I would argue I care if you're shaking your head but we've gone 16th 16th 15th 14th and incremental progress exactly and you know we we tried to make a two-stopper work didn't quite work had to abort that and go for a three-stopper which cost us a little bit of ground so we're making progress Kev as an avid listener to uh, the Autosport podcast I'm, I'm disappointed with Autosport's progress on this because uh, 14th is 13th of the losers, isn't it? So I think there's there's work to be done if we're to be taken seriously with our F1 I'd, I'd analysis. Ag- I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. But well, the work is being done. Progress is being made. Well, well, where's the inquest into why 
the three, the strategy didn't work. He's being hung out to dry for not being able to get the tyre science. Oh, right. I think it's we legit- need answers. I think, Ed. I think it's legitimate to hang me out to dry on that. I think no, it was- it's probably Scott Mitchell or Alex Cannon because it's almost <laughs> certainly one of those two. Well, we can find all sorts of scapegoats. That's always a, a bit of a a bit of a trick. But yeah, I mean, it, it, experience does count in this. And in fact, although there was one player in our league who was having all sorts of tyre troubles, made even more pit stops in, in that race. But it is as well as improving the car, which we're kind of working on. You know the running the races we haven't quite mastered which is actually quite encouraging because it means there's there's enough to the races and the conditions change and the track conditions and everything that if you don't really have the experience uh it, it can be quite difficult to to get it right so yeah we didn't start on the right tire didn't have the right strategy what's going to happen car's but, too slow yeah but we, we're getting there we're getting this there. sounds like every post-race interview with people that didn't finish in the top 10 isn't it We've, we've learned a lot of lessons for next time. I'm a little bit worried that Ben, ben Anderson's pointing finger of inquisition, which sometimes is, uh, is is brought out on Grand Prix weekends to, to interrogate team bosses, might uh, turn my way shortly. Are you, are you heading towards your first Ligate scandal or even Spygate scandal? No, we're very, very, uh, we're very, 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 we're very, very above board. Although you can actually, there is a feature whereby you can uh, analyse. Uh, it's not quite Spygate, but you can analyse other people's designs and see if you can see if you can learn something to uh, to copy, which of course real teams would uh, would never do. We're a small team building our way up, and we will get there eventually. It's just a question of improving. And we've improved. We're up to we're up to finishing fourteenth, so we think that's uh, that's pretty positive. But uh, yeah, so that's IGP Manager available to download on iOS and Android. Uh, if you have a look in the uh, episode information in the uh, in the podcast title, you'll see a link there. You can click through to sign up and have a go. And uh, I'm I sure you'll be better than Autosport. There's a, there's a reasonable chance, but we are we are getting there. I'll admit we are more a seller than Lotus right now. I'll, <laughs> I'll admit that. But I think there's worse things to be than a seller. That's fair. <laughs> 40. Absolutely. So, yeah, we'll bring you another update. Spanish Grand Prix coming up next. So, uh, hopefully, we'll go a little bit better there. We're going to move on now to 1981 to 1983, the lifespan of the McLaren MP41. No drivers' championship, no constructors' championship, but six wins. And, Kev, a significant car. Yes, I asked um, uh, Mark Williams, who uh, former Lola and McLaren designer, engineer, world championship winner, etc., to pick out some cars just to see what he would come up with. And he came up with a completely different list of the ones that we've we've come up with. But one of them was the MP41 um, because he's very much forward looking. You know, what you know, game changing is the thing for for the engineers and the designers. And this was the car, first carbon composite uh, Formula One car, John Barnard. Um, I actually wanted to put the MP42 in, which was in its various forms the car to have in the mid 80s, won championships with the Nicky Lauder and Alain Prost. But this, in a way, is the one that gets Ron Dennis era McLaren up and running after some dire years. He hadn't won a race since 1977. Um, so it, it not only does it move the game on because everyone has obviously now uh, has you know, carbon composite chassis, um, it also effectively resurrected uh, McLaren, won, won a Grand Prix in 1981 fought for the championship in 1982 and I think set them up for the success that followed um, in the in the 1980s. I think probably to call the MP4 2 a turbocharged MP4 1 is a little bit of a stretch but it certainly set the ball rolling um, you know, for, for, for Ron Dennis. Well, in terms of that carbon composite chassis, that, that's massive. That is what everyone uses today. That has taken the monocoque chassis that was developed in 1960s, brought it forward contemporized it and made sure that it's got even more torsional resistance making sure that it's even more predictable in in corners flexes less the suspension works as it should and the car is able to be you know piloted adequately by the drivers um it was a design that kate was come up with by john barnard and steve nichols um after the what was essentially a reverse takeover of mclaren um ron dennis 
had his Project 4 outfit in uh, Formula 2. And they put him, um, he was put in charge. Um, and that was sort of the first thing that he did in, in his uh, leadership of McLaren was give the keys to the both of those two in the design department to go, okay, can you go and design something, please? And they come up with something that changes the game in many, many ways. People didn't really trust carbon fiber so much. Um, it was sort of viewed as being a bit sort of fragile and it would shatter to lots of pieces on high impact. But uh, what it has, what it's done is it's just moved Formula One on so much and now you've got carbon crash structures that disperse the energy far more adequately than an aluminium shell or something like that would do and has saved many, many drivers from a horrible fate. Well, and that car actually proved the point, didn't it? Because I think it was the MP4 one that John Watson had his humongous shunt at Monza. Yeah, well, that kind uh, of resume, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think that car was actually put on display for a while to show, you know, look, actually, you know, this guy stepped out away from this and was fine. So, yeah, I think that probably helped sort of allay some of the fears about carbon fibre. It's not going to progress in the list, though, is it? Yeah, technically significant, I, but because I don't think it so. doesn't have enough success, and it seems like you would have to disqualify it for similar reasons that you disqualify the 79 in that in this case McLaren moved its own game on much further with a subsequent car yeah and it never and it didn't yeah it didn't win the world championship was at least the 79 did do that while it had its moment so yeah I think I think it does have to be lost off the list but I think it was it was worth it was a worthy milestone to mention definitely no so it's in that it's in the 12 isn't it uh well we'll move on to another McLaren the McLaren Honda MP44 in 1988 won the drivers and constructors championship of course 15 out of 16 wins so in terms of a, a car in a season you know only missing out on one victory arguably the most successful car should have been a clean sweep shouldn't it should have been of course Ethan had the clash with Jean-Louis Schlesser who was uh, on a one-off appearance for Williams in closing stages of the Italian Grand Prix which allowed Gerhard Berger to lead a Ferrari Ferrari 1-2 but yeah I mean the, the McLaren MP44 is an interesting one it often crops up because it's got the link to Senna and everything hasn't it Kevin that's that, you know it's got to be on this list low line of course, is the, the the big famous thing about this with them uh, sort of following on that that Brabham concept, or there's some debate about exactly there is. That, yes, let's, let's careful. Not get, let's not get too much into that. But you know, whoever contributed what, clearly a very good integrated package. Yes, I I think it has to be there partly because of the, the strike rate is incredible, and also if you remember a couple of years ago we did a, a sort of a World Cup social media thing with uh, all sport readers to see what their favourite F1 car was and th- this is this was the winner um, but I think a lot of that is tied up with Senna obviously it was a challenging fight between him and obviously Alain Prost and all that sort of stuff but I, I struggle with it because I don't think I mean perhaps Jake will have an opinion on this but I don't think it moves things on particularly uh, and of course the rules changed for 89 and turbocharged cars are out anyway um, but also I, th- I question the rival I question the opposition that it had you know Ferrari had a, an inferior turbocharged car and everyone else had Pretty much everyone else had a normally aspirated uh, engine. Are you discounting a seller? Yes. Because they had a turbo engine. Uh, yeah, well, and so did Lotus, of course. The same engine. Well, yes. Yeah, uh, but it was, that was a bit of a disaster. So, But I think you've got, you've got the best team with two best drivers in the world and opposition that was going through, you know, Williams were in their stage between going from Honda to Renault with Judd engines. And actually, even then, Mansell occasionally gave them, Nigel Mansell occasionally gave them something to worry about. So I think it, the opposition was at a low ebb and they had all the cards including the Honda Avenger, which was miles better than everyone else. So I, I sort of kind of feel like they you know, absolutely nailed its moment, but I don't consider it to be a game-changing car. And in fact, Ed, I'm going to throw this back at you because I know that you think that there's a more significant car from that season anyway. Yeah, I'd argue the March 881 and Adrian Newey car 
which was very quick, didn't win any races, but did have some good results and have some, some moments in, in the sun. I'd say that's a more significant car because that's the one that starts to set the trend for what's what's to follow. It's kind of very loosely almost a, a sort of prototype for the direction that Williams would go in the early in the early 90s. And it's kind of extreme packaging as well. And just so many elements about what that team was doing, a small team, were very prescient. I mean, you, it, it doesn't count for this list because obviously it didn't win a race, so it doesn't it doesn't come in there. But it, it was incredibly significant in terms of what it meant. I think the fact that the, the MP44, successful as it was, that there's another car on the grid, you can make an argument for being so significant, I think probably just weakens the MP44's case that, that little bit, especially as it was a... I mean, JBL, you may have a thoughts on this almost an evolutionary dead end you you could say it's maybe a little bit harsh but it it, it feels like a very much a one-off i think kev said it nailed its moment yeah it was 100 percent a one-off because that was the final year of turbocharged engines and mclaren had been using tag engines up to that point they got honda managed to prize them away from williams uh thanks to senna moving over or other way around, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, Williams didn't want to run, uh, can I say, Kazuki Nakajima. Of course, Kazuki's father, Satoru Nakajima, Honda wanted him in the car. And that was a big stumbling block for Williams. So that, that played a key part in the in the separation. Well, Anstena did have a good relationship with Honda from his year at Lotus, of course, as well. So, but uh, Honda threw a lot of money at making one final last hurrah turbo engine. Um, the fuel consumption was slashed ahead of AC8 as well, so you're only allowed to use 150 litres in the race. Um, so Honda had to make an entirely new engine. Um, McLaren threw a lot of resource at it, Honda threw a lot of resource at it, and if it didn't win, <laughs> um, then it probably it wouldn't have been, the expenditure would not have been justified. Uh, everyone else was sort of halfway housing before uh, 1989, so yeah, this was like the only real massive brand new turbo car that happened before uh, before the rules changed well it feels it feels like maybe a disservice if mclaren and honda have done a great job and produced something that is a step clear of everyone else because the others are not are fudging it a little bit or not quite committing to the regulations in the same way is that mclaren and honda's fault no i, mean, I, I it certainly sounds like they moved the game on in the engine stakes honda even if the regulations then changed and those that's, engines were obsolete subsequently. That's probably fair, but we've we've put it's on the list, oh. and we're kind of obviously looking to to sort of nail it down to a final. I don't know half dozen, however many we're up to it, um, and that for me is and also one season, um, one yeah, season did, wonder. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds but, like it but, doesn't score highly on the innovation, game changing side, but very highly on the X factor and success. I mean, it does have the X factor even today, doesn't it? It's, it's become this legendary car, and I guess we have to respect the fact that. As you mentioned, that social media poll, it, it came out so well. So maybe, uh, do we want to put the MP44 through and then come back to it? Well, Ben's put up a stout defence. Yeah, I, th- I think I was prepared to disqualify it on the basis that it wasn't innovative enough. But when JBL was talking about how much was put into the car and on the engine side, it seems like as a package, just because the others didn't put in as much, 
I feel like it, does, it is scoring it's, it's points in, in all it's categories. In. I'm okay, looking at Ed's document. It's, it's in. It's made it. Okay. Uh, the next car we've gone for is the Williams FW15C of 1993. Won the Drivers and Constructors Championship. Ten wins with Alan Prost and Damon Hill. Of course, the successor of the Williams FW14B, which is the one that's more often uh, talked about. But the 15C was the, the kind of peak gizmos car. Now, for a little bit of help on the Williams FW15C, we've uh, we've spoken to a friend of the podcast, Corinne Chandock, of course, a Williams Heritage driver he has driven the 15c a little bit and the 14b extensively first of all asked him about the williams fw 15c and and its place and its relationship with the 14b the fw 15c was the natural successor to the 14b Uh, it was at a time where the electronics were at the peak of their uh, relevance in formula one and you know, the, the teams were really investing more and more into that whole part of the sport. Um, I remember talking to, to Patrick Head about the 14B when I drove it at Silverstone a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, I, I was saying to him, it's a special car. It was so successful, statistically the most successful Williams. And um, he sort of looked at me and says, yeah, the problem is I only see the faults. And actually, all, all I can see is all the bits that we improved for the 15C, um, you know, the, the 15C itself, I, I think aesthetically, first of all, it's a, it's a nicer looking car. I actually, for me, it's the, it's my favorite, uh, aesthetically pleasing Williams, shall I say. Um, I actually have a painting of it or had a painting of it <laughs> at my house, uh, until my, when we moved, my wife donated it back to the Williams Heritage Workshop. So, if anyone visits the uh, museum and the heritage workshop, you'll see this picture of Alain Prost at Imola in the 15C hanging on the wall. But I think in terms of the steps forward, they were able to refine the way the active suspension worked. Um, it, it was a slightly smaller monocoque as well, um, which, you know, for, with Damon with his size, I think it's size 13 feet or something, it must have been a bit of a squeeze because it, it's quite small in the footwell. The, the actual electronics in terms of the traction control, the launch control, all of that worked a bit better. But also they introduced, I think it was at MagniCore mid-season, they introduced the individual pot braking. So it, it was a form of ABS, but actually they were able to use it as a sort of torque steer almost on the entry of the corners uh, is what I was I was told by by Paddy Lowe, who was obviously involved with the electronics, um, uh, you know, just before he went to McLaren at that time. So, um, you know, that was the the background to introducing that. So, you know, if you look at all the gizmos they had on it, yes, today in terms of the power units, the hybrids are a very technologically advanced cars, but from a chassis standpoint, the fifteen C has got to be one of the most technologically advanced race cars ever built. I think it's fair to say there were times when we didn't necessarily see the best of the Williams FW15C in 1993, but Alan Prost still, of course, won the title very comfortably. So what was it actually like to work with? I remember speaking to uh, Prost over dinner one year at Monaco about the the 15C and, you know, he he had driven three of my favourite F1 cars, the, the MB44 from 88, the Ferrari 641, of course, from 1990, as well as the 15C. And actually, he said he didn't enjoy driving the 15C. He didn't like that feeling that the active suspension 
gave him it you know he didn't have the 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 comfort level that someone like Damon or or Nigel had of course when the car because when you turn through the corner you know you do feel this movement underneath you which is where the active is working to compensate for any ride uh, for any roll and therefore keep the ride height at a stable platform so that movement Alan wasn't a big fan of it but obviously he still won the championship comfortably and you know wrapped it up in Estoril with a few races to go I think uh, you know Damon had done a lot of the testing in 91 and 92 with the active cars then the first the 14 well in fact he started on the 13B that had been converted for testing uh with the active and um you know so he was very familiar with it um but you know as you said prost still managed to to dominate the championship i think mclaren had made very good steps forward as well in terms of their chassis side of things obviously the renault engine was still a big step forward on the the cosworth that mclaren had and they were a customer cosworth you know for a lot of that season maybe even one step behind the benetton i think that uh, had the ford engine so you know that that helped williams as well but it is quite clear that you know with uh, with the brilliance of senna behind the wheel as well as the um uh, you know the the improvements mclaren had made to the active on their car on the M- the mp48 that was a, a a competitive chassis but didn't quite have the horsepower to compete with williams Well, there've been a great deal of great Williams Formula 1 cars. We've also discussed the Williams FW07 previously on this podcast. Which Williams do you think is the most significant from a Williams team perspective? I think if you got to think of a Williams in terms of its significance from a technical and statistical standpoint, you know, you got to pick between the FW07 and the uh, the FW14B. I think the the FW07 obviously kicked things off and and won the first championship on the first race and in terms of significance and you know from an emotional connection both Frank and Patrick you know that that was a, the car that put them on the map and established them as a as the team to beat uh, or one of the teams to beat in Formula 1 so that was a very very important car for them I think the 14B is the is the most iconic one in terms of you know the fans because that was at the height of Mansell mania you had you know the British Grand Prix with all the the people running wild to see him and obviously Nigel won nine races that season which um you know was utterly dominant finished wrapped up the championship way back in Budapest in August so it was um you know a very very strong season and the car was in terms of dominance you know if you consider the brilliance of Senna in the other um in the other team at McLaren at the time you know there were times when Nigel was out qualifying Senna by 2 seconds which you know was absolutely amazing if you consider Senna being you know arguably the greatest qualifier in F1 history so um for sheer success and dominance you'd have to probably say the 14b but you know i think from an emotional standpoint the fw07 still ranks right up there in the williams story well kev picking up on that he does mention the fw07 williams which was very very close to being discussed in this final 12 hugely successful car as you said earlier it ran with the uh, with the ground effect and he sort of describes that as the 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 kind of the the emotional favorite of the of the Williams team and the 14B is maybe the the iconic one so you've got 
a couple of significant cars there with X Factor, although we've gone with a with a, the 15C. So why is the 15C the only Williams on this list? The FW07 is the, uh, 07 is the Williams equivalent of the McLaren M23. It took a Lotus idea, improved it, probably more so, but I don't think it moved the game on particularly. It just you know, it was a classic Patrick Head nailing an idea. Um, and the 14B, emotionally, I wanted to put the 14B in because, you know, Red 5, Nigel Mansell, Mansell Mania, and all that sort of <laughs> stuff. Um, but I sort of try and look at it uh, sort of a bit more coolly. And first of all, as, as Patrick Head himself has said, you know, the, the 14B was really a, a, a passive car with active suspension thrown on it. It just happened to be so good that they didn't, <laughs> that was it. They could still dominate the season. Whereas the 15C is the car that, that an active car should have been um and it's, it's also a a bigger step from the 14b than maybe we remember because obviously same livery and you always kind of tend to ball them together as the same car but if you look at them just just the look of the car that the 14 is much more sort of angular and it looks like, like there's a big step aero wise as, as well so you, you can see the difference yeah and actually had a bigger on raw pace advantage certainly at the start of the season later on I do think mclaren closed the gap quite well but uh, early on the season had a bigger advantage than the 14b and sort of the final clincher, I suppose, is that it kind of is the, it's the epitome of the sort of gizmo, the gizmo Formula One era, if you so like. Of course, active, active ride, traction control, ABS were all outboard. All, exactly, all that sort of stuff. And actually, even though they'd actually brought in some restrictions for 93, narrow rear tyres, a few other little things like that. Uh, and by the end of the season, it was quicker than the 14B. And I, I would suggest that uh, soon to retire, already won the World Championship. Alain Prost probably wasn't as motivated to smack in the lap times as Nigel Mansell. Well, as Curry so. mentioned, he didn't really like the feel of the car. A bit like Ricardo Patrese with a 14B. Mm-hmm. He couldn't quite commit to it in the same way. And I think Prost was being very calculating about ticking off the Championship, so he maybe didn't see the, the best of it. Well, I think, listening to your argument, Kev, if you're going to advance the mp44 then you have to advance the williams fw15c and vice versa because it it seems like both cars are quite similar in the sense that they're the end of a particular rule set they're the full optimization of that rule set they dominated their opposition because those particular teams did a much better job than everyone else in terms of integrating all that understanding so um yeah for me I think we've advanced the the four four, haven't we? So I think the fifteen C is exactly the same deal, but five years later. Well, if we're talking about the emotional aspect of it, I want to put this through. Uh, as I alluded to in the beginning, this is the car that was winning the championship when I was born. Uh, <laughs> Kevin is shaking his head here. He feels so old right now. I do, yeah, yeah. Um, I get that a lot though, to be fair. But as a kid, I was an absolutely huge Damon Hill fan. Um, Another uh, one on the podcast. Hey, oh, yeah. um, of course, I had the active suspension as well. Um, a lot of cars did around that time in 1993. Everyone was going nuts for driver aids before they got banned at the end of the season. Uh, just to put that into sort of a little bit of an explainer. Um, essentially, the car could react to bumps in the road. And so, you know, if the car was like pitching or yawing or anything like that, the suspension could put that right and then ensure that the car was essentially in as much of a the same position throughout the track as possible but also if you look at the car as well it's though you've got a lot of adrian newey hallmarks on it it was one of the first cars to sort of have like some kind of tangible side pod undercut um you don't see it so much at the front but at the rear um he's trying to create that coke bottle shape that as you alluded to earlier with the march 881 um that he created there um and then I think from sheer iconic value, that livery, uh, the little uh, Sonic the Hedgehog feet by uh, on the flanks of the car, 
I I want to put this in more than any of the others, really, to be honest with you. Yeah, and let's quickly move on to the next one, which is the first and only Ferrari on the list, the Ferrari F2004. 2004 Drivers and Constructors Champion. Obviously, it did briefly run in 2005 before they brought the new car in, so uh, a year and a bit competitive life. 15 wins. Utterly, crushingly dominant, wasn't it, Kev? Yeah, I, I'm kind of more excited about this than the Williams, in a way, actually, because I think this is, for me, this is peak... Schumacher, Rory, Mark Schumacher, Rory Byrne, Ross Brawnier, a Ferrari. This is, and to be able to produce a car this good and this dominant, having already won the previous four drivers' titles and five constructors' championship, is absolutely phenomenal. And I think any car that comes out and is so quick in testing that the team has to go back and look over the data because they think they've maybe done something wrong and run it underway. Have we or, accidentally cheated? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, I mean, that's just phenomenal. And and in an era where you're in. It's more difficult to find innovation in the later cars for reasons of obviously regulation changes and by definition we get teams get better at building racing cars so there's going to be fewer big jumps to make so it should be the ultimate incremental gains car except that it was miles quicker than its predecessor I think that's partly due to the relationship the Ferrari had with Bridgestone I think it it, it sort of summarises that sort of tyre war era really well uh, and it was sometimes vulnerable in qualifying. Um, but in the race pace, it's it's just ridiculous. It's it's dominance. Um, I think at Monza they had problems with both cars in the first lap, and Jensen Button in the bar, which was Bar Honda, which was the second quickest car at some races, had a good lead, and the Ferraris just turned it up and both came through and and beat him. And it just yeah, race pace. Yeah, we talk about the gap between the the front th- three teams now and the and the back being big, but this was during an era of you know much more closely matched engines and yet the Ferrari was still able to completely you know smash the opposition and win the Constructors Championship with about five races to go I think and it all starts with the uh, F2001 as well that was sort of like the first one in the family uh, with the the kind of drooped nose and the move towards more sculpted side pods and that kind of thing the whole Rory Byrne design ethos um, F2002 that was much more successful. Uh, Almost made the list, actually, the 2003. Oh, really? uh, the 2003 car, um, that was a little bit of a, a back step. It still won out eventually, but it had a lot of problems with tyre with wear, um, especially at the rear. And so, as you say, Kev, with, with Bridgestone, before I went away and worked on it, they went away and worked on their suspension, um, going to improve that tyre life, try and get more out of it at less expense basically taking taking that 2003 car and just making it better in every single facet and in 2004 yeah uh, nobody else came close um you know bar had a try to but didn't quite do it uh williams and mclaren were massively weak that season um so and renault weren't quite hitting their stride yet so although you could argue that the rest of the field was on behind the eight ball a little bit uh ferrari you know, that that was such a brilliant car. But the other thing we should say, Ben, about the Ferrari is that no for, no Grand Prix car has been the fastest Grand Prix car really for so long in that it wasn't until 2017 and the, the high downforce regs that we started to see a lot of those lap records that the F2004 held being uh, being toppled. So I guess it's unique in the... In the not longevity as such, but the length of time that it was a it was a, a gold standard because I know it was regulations that held back subsequent cars, but it was the peak Formula One car for a, a very long time. Yeah, it's the perfect storm. I think peak F1 is a good way of putting it, Ed. Um, the fact the car went into the next season as well in an era where obviously well-established cars are new pretty much every season, uh, unless you're a you know, very poorly funded outfit, um, says a lot for it. Um, 
it's, it, it's, it ticks all the boxes, doesn't it? Super successful, massively quick. Um, okay, maybe not the most innovative in terms of one singular design aspect, but it brought lots of things together into one place. Um, as you said, Kev, so fast that it surprised its own team, which is very unusual. And of course, you know, um, you know, iconic Ferrari um, has some serious X factor. I have mixed feelings about it because. You know, it is that era of peak Michael Schumacher, it was, Ferrari it was, it was dominance. Quite, it was quite boring. As, as a fan, of, yeah, uh, to watch Formula One in that era was very, very predictable. And you were, you were desperate for something to come along that could break that stranglehold. Unfortunately, the following season, Fernando Alonso and Renault managed to do that. And um, a rule change. And a rule change, yeah. And of course, Bridgestone finally dropping the ball with the tyres um, properly. Um, but it took a lot, didn't it? Um, but of course, it's, it's one of those things that excellence can be boring. In yeah. sport, on the outside, that's or can look boring. Yeah. Say. but you know, in retrospect, you have to acknowledge that you know this. This is one of the the absolute contenders to win, isn't it? I would say. Yeah, I think if the fifteen C and four four are through on the sort of nailing the moment factor, then so is the the Ferrari. And I will just say to to Ed, we've got to have still, a Ferrari as well. We've we? got to have Ferrari, but also it does still hold some race lap records. So in qualifying, the yep. current cars are, are are blowing it away now, but in races because of the tyres and all that sort of thing. The F2004 still holds quite a few lap records. And arguably it was so good on the tyres when Ferrari got it right that that was the reason behind the 2005 rule change because... Yeah, it's, thought, a, it's a no no tyre stops, wasn't it? Yeah, because um, British they were getting it so right and then suddenly they weren't. In 2005 it was all about the Michelins. Until uh, until US 2005, of course. But <laughs> Well, that's not... Uh, Different podcast alert. Yeah, let's <laughs> uh, not get into that one. Well, uh, our 11th car is the Red Bull RB7 of 2011, won the Drivers and Constructors Championship. Of course, Sebastian Vettel, hugely effective in that car, won 11 of the 12 races that car won. Now, I'd I'd argue this car is kind of emblematic of that whole sequence of, of Red Bulls from 2009 through to 2013 under Adrian Newey. I was that pretty much every Grand Prix in that period uh, covering it. So great respect for what that, that team did. So why did you pick the... 11 car specifically, Kev. Exhaust blown diffuser, basically. Can I throw it to Jake now so he can explain it? You can if you like, although obviously in terms of the exhaust blown diffuser, they were they did start to do it a couple of seasons yes, before. But, but, so, oh, well, they uh, started uh, doing it in the, the 90s. This is, well, it, well it, it was an idea that came back. Yeah, well, one, of the eight, one of the 80s, I think the 83 Renault had yeah. some oh, even, even Interestingly, yeah. I remember interviewing Adrian Newey at, uh, at Red Bull in Milton Keynes and he said, well, actually, when we first thought about bringing exhaust blowing back because of Williams, Williams Renault, that had it. Uh, the first thing they they did was to say to Renault, oh, "Can you pull out all the work you did back in the day on those some of the engine yeah. maps and that?" So that that was the starting point. So I interviewed Paddy Lowe, and he he said this was in 2014. He said when exhaust blowing came back, he was kicking himself because he said we did this, and then some other team brings it back and you think oh i was yeah. there why didn't i think of this first yeah it's a game change you've got to make it stick haven't you yeah, yeah. So, so. i think the, the, i mean the, the, the rb7 is there because it's the ultimate expression of that i think um and because they did start to curb the exhaust after that. during that period with position of tailpipes um, and that kind of thing and in fact they did try to uh at silverstone they tried to ban it um and alonso won didn't he alonso won i mean the red bull's still fastest but they they banned uh well, they tried to ban what was called cold blowing, which was, uh, well, no, they tried to ban off-throttle blowing, whereby you, the driver would come off the throttle, but you'd be effectively be using the the engine as an air pump to create 
downforce, which wasn't considered allowed. But there were all sorts of problems because Mercedes had been given a dispensation to fire some cylinders before, which was to do with uh, crankshaft cooling, if memory serves. So they were suddenly allowed to keep doing it. So, the old reliability. Yeah, trick. the whole but the whole the whole British Grand Prix was just very much a one-off in it, and it went back. But yeah, uh, JBL, perhaps you can explain a little bit more about exhaust blowing. Yeah, well, as you said, it was it was going on in the nineties. Um, teams would literally shove their exhaust exits in the diffuser somewhere because uh, it's quite high energy air that you're getting out of the exhaust then that's gonna just essentially push the airflow along accelerate it create a little bit more low pressure in the diffuser and then you're getting a lot more suction therefore more downforce in 2011 uh rebel had moved on a little bit so that the exhausts were exiting sort of at the side at the bottom of the side of the the side pods rather than into the floor and if you look at a uh, a CFD analysis of a of an exhaust, the airflow coming out of it is rotational, um, and so it sort of twists and it turns into a sort of almost like a vortex, almost, but not quite. Um, but what Rebel used that to do was sort of essentially create a little bit of a barricade between the airflow that comes off of the tire and jets inside the diffuser, try and keep it that keep that away from the diffuser so that the floor is working a lot more cleanly so it's essentially like a seal almost yeah, effectively it's doing what skirts yeah did in a, in a sort of virtual way almost if you want to put it that way yeah exactly um so what you get is especially with the, the rear tires because they're a lot more massive than the front ones you get what's called tire squirt so when the wheel rotates it creates a small other way get rotation the other way uh just at the point of the floor and then the tire drives over that sort of rotation um and the airflow just squirts in to the diffuser and you're not getting as much performance out of it because you've got this massive high pressure air arsing about uh in the diffuser um so it was essentially just to stop that happening and therefore you're getting so much more rear end downforce and the red bull was never the quickest car in a straight line on that grid you saw them regularly not bothering the top half of the field in the speed trap but because it was so good in the corners um sebastian vettel just took it to stratospheric heights so it was a a very a very clever very clever innovation well it allowed them to run that high rake as well didn't it because you're sealing the rear you drop the front down which gets the the front working better so you're over you're increasing your overall downforce that, as the well. actual point about rake is i think an important one because we have seen and the 2009 red bull kind of started going that way with the high rake and that that's been a trend ongoing even to, to today uh for most cars anyway well, and uh, and you know the other elements that jbl mentioned in terms of you know trying to boost rear downforce and wing performance people are still yeah, trying yeah. to recapture what's been so, taken away the, by the, the regulations this is adrian newey setting the aero trend because yeah i think when newey yeah. really excels in i mean he always see the saw the potential for aero but you know he's he's a he's an aerodynamicist but he's also a broad engineer you know, he's a race engineer in the past people like mario andretti and in, in f2 and that kind of thing well mario andretti in america and also in f2 i'm gonna try to make it sound like mario andretti was a was a was racing in f2 with newey but newey's great at working out where you focus in a particular rule set to find the big gains and i think that's where he really really excels he's got that sort of holistic view of everything and, and i think that's his great ability to to pick out the things all right we do that so bringing exhaust blowing back is a great example of that he thought oh yeah we did that actually the you way the rules have now. gone now this wasn't possible for a while it didn't make sense but now actually with the way things are we can do it and and again it's just an influential series of cars so- an example of um engine manufacturer and team working in harmony as well 
there. Very Ren- so. Renault are very very proud. very easy to forget that now. Yeah, given what happened. of course, yeah, because of the acrimonious divorce between Renault and Rebel in the hybrid V6 era. But in this period, they worked very well together, and Renault didn't produce the most powerful engine, as JBL alluded. Um, you know, Mercedes and Ferrari were were better in the power stakes, but by using clever trickery in the Renault engine, combined with Newey's aerodynamic foresight, they were able to wipe the floor with the opposition for many seasons. So we're going to advance the RB7? I mean, I think it scores low on the X-Factor rating, if I'm honest. I think it's a p- brilliant piece of engineering, but I, I don't really like that era of car. But I think, for all the reasons that have just been yeah outlined, I think it, it, it has, to, has to advance. Yeah. Okay, so we'll put the RB7 through. And the last of the of the 12 is 2014's Mercedes W05. 16 wins. Drivers and Constructors Championship, of course, the first car of the uh, the V6 hybrid turbo era. And, of course, we should remember the aero rules did change quite a bit that year. It was quite a significant rule change, not just limited to this massive power unit change. I mean, this was a, this was one of the most dominant cars. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that's the, the nub, isn't it? Um, Kev mentioned earlier in the podcast that you could argue the the Cosworth DFE is the greatest Formula One engine of all time, but Clive Chapman and Classic Team Lotus said, "Well, if Mercedes keep going the way they have done with their hybrid V6, they might lay a claim to that honor." And this is the season where they came out with the most advanced uh, answer to the new rule set: massive investment, massive time dedicated to the, the research project before. 2014 season they left everybody standing you know ferrari's engine was overweight and uh developed too late really because they were focusing on the the 2013 championship too much um red bull had been pushing renault to devote more time and resource to that because they were hearing rumblings from the the jungle drums that merck were ahead of the game already two years behind though weren't they they were that message and um you know the the Renault engine was was no good, you know, very unreliable as well. Um, similar to the sort of situation we saw with McLaren and Honda subsequently in the V6 era. Um, was the car great? I don't know if the car was necessarily. Um, I mean, you know, Red Bull would argue probably that their their 14 chassis was better than the Mercedes car, considering that they were able to bother them at some races, um, despite a massive power disadvantage. Um, but certainly uh, the engine was a step way beyond anything anyone else could produce that season. Yeah, and I think if you, for me, it's where did Williams finish in the Constructors' Championship that year? They went from being at the back of the grid pretty much to third in the Constructors' Championship. and Pole in uh, 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 Austria. Yeah, pole in Austria. And I think it's, I think Patrick Head would probably agree that, that Williams hasn't done a good aero car since the late 90s. So for them to finish third with a car that was low drag and not much downforce, which isn't really what you want in modern Formula One, owes a lot to the engine. Yeah, I, thought, I mean the engine was clearly key, although there was, there was, you know, we shouldn't put down the car too much. They had to do a lot of work in order to make it make it work. I think you know, in terms of the, they went through something like thirty different iterations of the cooling configuration. Um, some of those were experimental ones before the season started, but you know, the huge amount of work to make that car work consistently. Obviously, it still had to produce the downforce to be. To be decent, shall we say? So I don't think. I, think well, I don't think it's going to be the sort of car that Lewis Hamilton looks back on as no, a fond no. driving experience, though. Of course, it no, will mean absolutely. a lot to him in terms of his second world championship and you know setting up the legacy we now see Mercedes leaving in Formula One. But the, most of the cars in that season, I think, were 
efforts to just survive the yeah. the problems created by the engine regulations, weren't they? It's like, how do we dissipate this heat? How do we just keep all these weird, wonderful, highly stressed electric motors just working long enough so we can get to the end of the race? And, and, and they did that's have, where and they Mercedes did have, scored. They did have Erz problems as well. I remember Canada. And they, they were close problems. to not being ready, weren't Ross they? Ross the end of the season. We, we remember the pre-season testing uh, in 2014 and so many cars breaking down. Red Bull, obviously, famously, hardly able to do any laps. But I remember Paddy Lowe saying they were really concerned, well, Mercedes, that when they they first ran that car, it would it wouldn't work, and well, they, they just they, about made it. They first ran it at a Silverstone filming day, where apparently Rosberg drove out in it, and it was on fire before we get to the end of the day. <laughs> but by the time they got to Hereth, they were they were the first. I remember standing there with Gary Anderson at the pit exit, seeing that was the first hybrid era car that that got out. I'm not a big powertrain guy. I'm, I've never I. When I was back at university, I did terribly in the thermodynamics exams. I was never very great good. to have you on board. <laughs> so tell us <laughs> why this know. engine was the game changer. In so it's Formula good to 1. know. Um, we're going to put you on. From... Uh, we're going to put you on downhill soapbox racing from now. On. <laughs> you can stick me on. Uh, stick me on more Formula E stuff. That'll be fine. Um, <laughs> That's very powertrainy. Uh, but it's electric. So it's I mean, this era of cars weren't great uh, to look at. Were they? No, 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 no. But out of the, I'll make a case for the car. Um, before we kick it while it's done too much but it, out of the 2014 car probably wasn't a particularly stacked field in that particular respect but it was the most good looking car on the field what about the twin tusk lotus <laughs> that you're was, obsessed that was, with the twin tusk lotus it was great, it was great ben anderson obsessed with twin tusks i wonder why being ed <laughs> yeah we, we enjoy that price but what mercedes had it was just to put into context why its engine was so good it was because the compressor was separated from the turbo. Compressor was at the front. Turbo was at the rear. So but that, that split turbo was pretty pretty innovative, really. Yeah. Subsequently so copied by had, Honda. It's been yeah. the key to their turnaround. So you had the cold bits in one bit and the hot bits in the other bit. So when you have a, a compressor right next to a turbo, um, obviously the turbo is generating lots of heat. That's why you have the MGUH there. Um, but if you ha- move the compressor away from it, you're trying to compress as much air as possible. And if you introduce heat into that environment, then the airflow expands. So when you're uh, chucking air into the engine, um, you know, it's not as dense and therefore you're not getting as much uh, energy out of the fuel uh, as, as you need. Uh, and then therefore you're not getting as much energy out of the turbo as you need. So that was what Mercedes had going for it. And I will make a case for the car uh, on its own as well, being particularly good there were three other teams on that grid with mercedes engines so williams force india and mclaren McLaren. and none of them could win with even though they had mercedes engines none of them racked up a win i think probably we can't quite advance this car but i do think it's important to note that it was a good car as well as a good engine yeah well should we say a great engine relative to the competition and a very good car the problem with this period is that you know the new rules that came in aerodynamic rules that came in for 2017 subsequently been revised they they kind of supersize the cars and the the modern iteration of the v6 hybrid formula one cars from then until now feel like they do justice a lot more to that advancement in technology yeah they they look they look better they're a lot quicker they have much more x factor than this era of cars which i think are count among the ugliest we've ever seen okay well let's let's uh, discount the mercedes so quickly before we get into the final kev you had to come up with this this list of 12 cars to discuss there's only one ferrari there's no brabham's in there there's only one williams there are a few 
I mean, what were a few of the cars that uh, that narrowly missed out? Because there will be people listening to this thinking, "Oh, how can you not put in such and such a car?" And if I've got the list of you will be cars hated were, by the listeners, Kev. You, you were going through here. I mean, McLaren MP413, the brake steer, McLaren one for the yeah, that was that rules Williams FW19. Some great cars there that you consider the brawn. Of course, some people would say. Ha! I think a lot of designers would have an issue with the brawn. Perhaps we'll skip over that one. That's a separate podcast. Well, I think the, the there's, there's a reason the brawn isn't in the final twelve. It's a great story and. Uh, uh, and, and it's a legendary car for a reason, but I don't think it quite belongs in this company for for various reasons. Yeah, um, I think probably the '98 McLaren, the MP4 13, would ha- has a you know has a good shout for this. Um, obviously, had that clever braking system as well until that was banned, um, and gave McLaren it sort of jumped them ahead of Ferrari and Williams. Did sort of lose its advantage quite quickly. Um, although it was a close title race in the it end, wasn't it? was a close title race. How much of that was Mark Schumacher absolutely, you know, screwing every point out of the Ferrari that that was possible? Um, so into debate, and it, I, I don't think it, I don't think it's game changing in the way that some of these other, some of these other cars are. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to think of other other ones that I've missed out. The RB9, obviously, we've talked about sort of the ultimate evolution of that Red Bull, but the, the RB7 because of the exhaust blown. Uh, diffuser was why that that was in really um so yeah i'm just is it, are there any other cars that anyone thinks should be there that i've that we've well, not cars like the brabham bt52 people i was going to mention the bt52 autosport media uk's editor-in-chief andrew van der berg literally wrote the book on that car yes good thing he's not here is he maybe he'll be absolutely <laughs> apoplectic we're going to go and get him yeah i can um, see him out the window see him raging up and down outside yeah, the he, studio he can't quite well, hear us but he is he's not far away Again, it, it it didn't last very long, did it? And actually, it wouldn't have won the World Championship if Renault continued to develop the 83 car. That was basically an incredible engine bolted to a good chassis. And I think you could also say with the way McLaren development went, kind of away from that arrow-shaped yes. car, suggested it was a little bit of a yeah, on a little look, bit of a dead end. Brabham went downhill after that, didn't yeah. they? I mean, great um, cars, certainly, but um, again. Yeah, yeah fe- high on the fever rating. You I mentioned the 89 Ferrari, didn't you? The 89 Ferrari, semi-automatic gearbox. But three wins. Uh, but yeah. Exactly. Um, Mark Williams uh, talked about earlier, mentioned the uh, seamless shift gearbox in the McLaren, which was 05, because it, it again, it was another one of these game changing. Uh, yeah, things, no, of course, but, everyone's but, on seamless shift. Yeah, yeah. So, but in the end, you know, we had to pick, you know, had to pick the, the dozen. And uh, I think the, the combination of, of success and innovation is why we've got um, got this list. Well, we've puzzlingly whittled it down to seven of the original 12, which mathematically <laughs> seems a little bit odd. So let's try and get a, a quick conclusion. Mercedes W196 of 54 and 55, the Lotus 49 of 67 to 70, the Lotus 72 of 70 to 75, the McLaren MP44 of 1988, Williams FW15C of 93, the Ferrari F2004, 2004 and 5, and the Red Bull RB7. Now, let's try and prune a couple of these fairly quickly. I've got another way of looking at it. Number oh, number and quality of drivers who won Grand Prix in them. Well, that's an interesting way of looking at so it. So you go through Merck. So this is your disqualifying so, yeah, extra so category. Fangio and Moss would have won between them in a pram at that period in the 50s. Anyway, the Lotus 49 scores quite well because it's Graham Hill, Jim Clark, Jochen Rindt, and of course, uh, Joe Siffert won in the privateer car. So that probably stays in. Lotus 72, Rint again, Fittipaldi, Peterson. Uh, I think there's. Th- oh, and Jackie X won a non chance for one race in it in 74. MP44, Prost and Senna, mm-hmm. delete. Uh, 15C, <laughs> Prost passed his best and Damon Hill. 
maybe that would stay. Well, I'd argue mm. that you've got a driver who, in Prosti, is not really trying, and a driver who's not there on yet. a massive learning curve. And I think we'd all agree Damon Hill was a significantly better driver by sort of the end of 94 than he was in 93. Yeah, agreed. I, I think if Mansell had been in the Williams in 93, Senna wouldn't have won five races. I, I think Mansell would have won more than nine races yeah. that he did in, in the 14B. Um, okay, that stays in. So, that stays, so stays I, I mean, you tried to slip through disqualifying the 4-4. Are we are we going to lose the MP44 at this stage from the seven? I don't think it's going to. I don't think the MP44 come, was going to be a contender for number one. I just don't think it's quite seismic enough. You know, we're talking about the difference between incremental difference between various great. But cars I, I, the trouble is, I think if you apply the Kevin Turner extra category, if you imagine it wasn't raced by Prost and Senna, you put two other lesser drivers in it would it still have dominated the answer is probably yes yeah, in which case then it's it qualifies in the same way the 15c does i don't think just so be. good that I anyone think, could drive it i think you could probably <laughs> argue that the mclaren mp44 and the williams fw15c might cancel each other out in terms of oh. i mean i think what i mean these are all very successful cars and i think you're coming down to you need to start look at sheer weight of success and the impact Overall, I mean, I think there is a certain bias in the mechanism we're using in that it goes back towards older cars when you could be a little bit more dramatic with your innovations. But I think there's a sound reason for that because I think we are t- trying to talk about game-changing cars there. I think if you are looking at those cars, you've got to just sort of imagine would, I don't know, for the eight, uh, late 80s, early 90s cars, would... Thierry Bootsen have won a championship in it for the the <laughs> subsequent cars after that would Giancarlo Fisichella have won a championship in it <laughs> that's a good way of uh, a good way of looking I mean that's in terms of performance but I, I think I think another way of looking at it is if if that car had not had never happened like you could remove the MP44 and the 15C from existence and I don't think F1 changes a great deal yeah, that's see what you point. mean. If yeah. you see, I mean, I'm not again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, we are talking about seven cars, so it's not the MP44's rubbish. It's an incredible car, and you know that will always stand as as a great as a great car. So I kind of feel like the MP44 and the Williams miss out there, just just for that reason. Yeah, and probably you know, conversely, the the RB7, even though it's perhaps not got the X factor, that it still has its imprint in Formula One now, doesn't it, in terms yeah, of aerodynamic yeah. development. So well, that, we've, we've, that's very important in terms of changing the game. We've whittled down to five. Now, the Mercedes, does the Mercedes have the X factor? I mean, I, I think I have a slightly unusual relationship with the W196 because I do like Mercedes Grand Prix cars, both the pre-war and those ones. So I, I'm a, I really like the W196. I, I like the look of it. I know I'm a little bit unusual in that. I like the fact that I had Stromlinienwagen bodywork as well as the <laughs> open wheeler. And I, I just think it was a crushing car. Streamlined. That did. <laughs> but I don't think it's a crushing car because of the car. I think if Mercedes ran by, run by Alfred Neubauer and Moss and Fangio were, in a def- were running Lancias or 250Fs, probably, I think you still see a steamroller. I think that's about a professional racing team that's so far ahead of everyone else that they were going to win whatever. I mean, it was a very, very big operation. It was almost a modern Grand Prix team in terms of its uh, yeah, size. Uh, yeah. Does that, that, out, does that big, outweigh it, the, the importance of the car specifically then, given this is a great it, car rather instance, than great think, teams? Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's an, a candidate for the great team. In fact, I think there was a Norbauer quote from a pre-war Maserati. Well, if we'd been running it, it would have won everything. And it's kind of a little bit like that. It's that they're just operationally so far advanced of everyone else. They could have rocked up with anything half. They'd have, they'd have won the 2014 Austrian Grand Prix with the Williams. 
There we go. Very possibly. Well, we've we've got down to four now. The Lotus Forty Nine, the Lotus Seventy Two, the Ferrari F Two Thousand and Four, and the Red Bull RB Seven. Should we choose between one of these two Lotuses, the Forty Nine and the Seventy Two? What do you feel, Ben? I mean, I think we did talk about this. Which one of those two is kind of the 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 signpost to the modern single seater? It's the Seventy Two, isn't it? So you're going with that, yeah, because of the because of the side pods and the yeah. There's just a bit more to it that's still relevant. I felt like in the progression of the four Lotuses I drove, the 49 was the first cue towards modern understanding, but it still felt like an old car lacking in grip and certain capabilities, where the 72 feels immediately like a well-sorted, quick, powerful single-seater. You know, so you, is that you, the first you, modern modern Grand Prix car? I guess you could make a, you could make a, a case a, of. Yeah, you could make a legitimate case of that. And also... You know, happy with that. And it's, it can rightly be considered probably the greatest Lotus F1 car of all time. So considering they were one of the greatest constructors, um, it's it's a strong contender. We've probably kind of got the <laughs> the Lotus 72 almost into the last two there. So we've got it up against the Ferrari F2004 and the Red Bull. Obviously, I think the Red Bull's got to go at this stage. I think the Ferrari F2004 was just so... I think it does have an excellent... Blown downforce, not doing it for you, I, I, I really, I mean, I, I think what Red Bull achieved in that period was sensational. I, I really do like that whole sequence of, of, of Red Bull cars I know them know them well but I just think it's hard to differentiate between them isn't it that's the exactly thing. You know, they're all so good whereas I think I think Ferrari worked up to a peak with the 2004 whereas Red Bull just sort of had this, <laughs> this period at peak and then and then dropped off so I think we're kind of we're coming down to a battle between the Lotus 70 the Lotus 72 and the Ferrari F2004 I think Jake should make his first yeah what do you think here, he's, <laughs> he's, he's not uh, waded into that bit so go on you, you make the first call on the, uh, on the last two there well using your criteria if it, Kev if we delete one of them from history which one would make the most impact uh, it's a 72 uh, 100% uh, if you delete the F2004 what was the car that won after that was Renault R25 which was an evolution of the R24 could have been the McLaren that season if it wasn't yep. so unreliable yeah if not so rubbish which and the MP420 was was McLaren learning from that particular car as well and ended up it was still fragile but it was very very quick uh, but yeah everybody copied the Lotus 72 um, it liked the 49 it had the, the DFE in it which was the engine to have for, until the 1980s I can't. I can't really make a case against it, to be honest with you. Yeah, the seventy-two seems to be coming. Well, I mean, from my perspective, I must admit, when we started this process. I sort of had the, I sort of shrugged off the seventy-two just as a very good car that won a lot of races. But then actually, you think about it, and its significance has kind of grown. So it has, it has won me over. And I think, you know, the Ferrari F two thousand and four was a, a stunning car. I think it does have an X factor in terms of if you sort of think of a Grand Prix car of the twenty first century, it's one that leaps to mind those reasons but I just think with 72 the 72 the, matches the, it in every aspect it's got it, in more, terms of it, your criteria it's got more wins it's got greater longevity it's got an X factor bigger it's, performance it's defined, steps season to season it's defined the genre so I think it's ticking it's ticking all of those boxes ultimately and the only thing that stopped it having greater weight of numbers is probably the fact that the best driver of the day Jackie Stewart was was racing for Tyrrell that for me is the crucial factor almost all the other in fact pretty much all the other cars on this list the greatest driver of the day drove that car and won in it and i would argue that at no point did the lotus 72 had the best driver in the world driving it that might ronnie peterson fans might be a bit upset about that um but in its heyday the 70 to 73 rint was maybe as quick as jackie stewart but i don't think he was better and i think stewart was better than emerson fittipaldi uh so i think if jackie stewart had been the lotus 72 i think it would have been 
curtains really for everyone else <laughs> and the other point of course is it had the same engine as a lot of other cars so to be as successful as that five championships and 20 wins with the same engine and gearbox as a lot of the other the rest of the field lotus must have been doing something right it's the inverse to the argument that disqualified the mercedes wo5 isn't it yes. it's like you know they not everyone can have the same engine they they partly leapt massively ahead of the competition because of their own engine development as in this case that's equalised across most of the field. So, therefore, it is the car that stands out, isn't it? So, we have a winner, the Lotus 72. Congratulations. We've, we've asked a question and we've, we've answered it. So, uh, well, thank you very much. I mean, I, I thought that it almost surprises me, but I don't disagree with it. I think, yeah, this, this makes perfect sense. But it's always an interesting thing on these these things when you have an initial kind of idea, but then you set some parameters for it and you start working through things and reasoning it out. Sometimes you come up with a with a an answer you might not come up with, although I don't think the Lotus 72 will surprise quite a lot of people. I think a lot of people would have gone for it. I, no. can't, I now can't believe that, A, I've driven Autosport's greatest Formula <laughs> 1 car ever, and also, B, that I didn't make it my favourite out of the four that I drove. <laughs> well, yeah, but you're a racing driver. You're always going to go for the quick one, won't you? But, uh, but I, when I started this process, I didn't have the Lotus 72 in my mind as being the number one car. Um, but, it, yeah. I thought the 04 Ferrari would win. It got to the final. Yeah, Very close. Yeah. I mean, I think the only thing the Ferrari... It's, it's the Argentina of the Football World Cup, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the only thing the Ferrari lacks is I think it just... And it, a product of its time more than anything else in that it couldn't be quite so defining, shall we say. But I think it was the... I think the 2004 does encapsulate kind of a peak Formula One in many ways. Whereas I think the Lotus 72, a much earlier car, but it's it's almost the, pointing the way towards that, that peak... Yeah, it changed Formula One. Formula One rather than encapsulated it. Exactly, it? yeah. So I think that's when we're talking about game changer, X Factor success. I think the Lotus 72 ticks all the boxes. So uh, thanks very much, Jake Boxer Leg, Ben Anderson, and Kevin Turner. Uh, do pick up Autosport Magazine, which will have Ben's article about driving those four Lotuses in. That's out on Thursday. So yeah, grab that in celebration of a thousand Grand Prix, or should I say 1,000 World Careful. Championship races. Because, of course, there are 11 Indianapolis 500s, not Grand Prix. The anomalous. You've got to be careful about the phrase Formula 1 World Championship race as well, because, of course, for Formula 2 cars, we're running 52 and 53. And, of course, there have been many more than 1,000 Formula 1 races because of non-championship races. Room 101 with that straw. And if you want to even be a little bit more pedantic, as I would like to be, you could argue that that China is the 1,001st World Championship race put on because of Spain 1980 retrospectively. Lost wow, it. Yeah. This is so, very so, complicated, so, isn't know, it? it? What, what are we celebrating? We're yeah. ce- we are celebrating <laughs> life, Life and motorsport. Can we just fantastic. get to the pit stop betting bit now? <laughs> yes, let's let's get the promotion on. Well, seeing as you mention it, we have we have various uh, things. You can download the pit stop betting app, and you'll be able to bet on the outcome of the Chinese Grand Prix. All sorts of markets on there. Have a look at autosport.com where there'll be all the news from uh, from the weekend. I'll be out there in in China with uh, with my colleagues, bringing you all the latest action and Check some special uh, thousand F one point scoring world championship <laughs> heavily that have been held races celebratory content. Yeah, we are celebrating something, celebrating numbers. That's uh, that's what will be there. There's loads of content that in, in Autosport Mag and Autosport Plus as well, our subscriber area. There'll be some special 1,000GP content in there. Do check out sistertitlesmotorsport.com, F1 Racing Magazine, out monthly, which itself has got Daniel Ricciardo on the cover currently, and that's got some 1,000th Grand Prix content, a really good photo feature in there that's worth having a look at. Ben, of course, the editor of F1 Racing now. And also Motorsport News out every Wednesday. Normally I'd say the pit stop betting promotion here, but I've already said it. So thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another... Auto Sport Podcast. 
Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. American Giant is the leading manufacturer of American-made clothing. When you choose American Giant, you are saying yes to clothes made under the highest standards, ones that support sustainable jobs, living wages, safe working conditions, and use high-quality materials. Plus, they have a full range of timeless, durable basics for men and women. Wear your values in the new year. Get 20% off with code NY23 at American-Giant.com. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com. Code NY23. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.